You're listening to a sermon from our pastor, Brian Payne. We would love to have you worship God with us this Sunday at 1045 in the morning and at six o'clock in the evening as we make, nurture, and equip disciples of Jesus Christ in Auburn and throughout the world. Well, good morning. So continue to praise his name. Turn your Bible to John chapter 18. We're just going to be looking at the last three verses here this morning in John chapter 18. Thank you, Josh, and choir and orchestra and Lamar for leading us so faithfully in worship. And let's pray and ask the Lord uh, to bless this portion of the worship service, the preaching of his word. Father, we come to you this morning and we do praise your name. We praise the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly places with every spiritual blessing in Jesus Christ. Your purposes for us were purchased by the Son and then they were communicated to us by the Spirit. We worship the triune God this morning. May we behold you today in the face of your Son through the preaching of your, of your word. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. It's hard to believe, but it's been 20 years this June since Nicole Brown Simpson and Ron Goldman were murdered in Brentwood, area of Los Angeles. Uh, O.J. Simpson, who'd had a history of physical abuse and, and threats to his wife, uh, was arrested and charged with both murders. Despite a nine-month criminal trial, which included a lot of circumstantial and physical evidence linking O.J. to the crime, he was acquitted. Now, even though he was acquitted in the criminal trial, one year to the month of his acquittal, he was sued by the victim's families for wrongful death in the civil trial. And on February the 4th, 1997, 27 years ago today, the jury found him responsible for the deaths of Nicole Brown Simpson and Ron Goldman and awarded their families $33.5 million in damages. Now what happened? What was the difference between the criminal trial and the civil trial? Well, I had to call uh, our chairman of the deacons, who is an attorney, Mike Speakman, to, to answer that question for me. And he taught me, and I'm ready for, to be a lawyer at this point after that conversation. <laughs> he taught me that in a criminal trial, the jury needs proof beyond reasonable doubt to convict because the penalty is so severe. It could be, it could be death or it could be the loss of liberty, time in prison. And lawyers often say that beyond a reasonable doubt is 99.9% certainty. They didn't feel like they had that. But in a civil case, the jury only needed the better weight of evidence, 50.1% certainty to hold him liable because the penalty is not as severe, monetary judgments. Now, many people believe that the victims and their families did not get justice in the criminal trial, but they did receive justice in 
the civil trial 27 years ago today. Now, though that debate will probably never end on whether O.J. Simpson's trial was just, we certainly know there is no debate that the six trials that our Lord Jesus Christ is having to undergo before the cross were all completely and thoroughly unjust. He's gone before the Jews three times, Annas, then Caiaphas, and then the Sanhedrin. And they pronounce him as blasphemous and, and worthy of death, but they did not have the power of capital punishment under Roman rule. And so they passed him to Pontius Pilate, the governor of Judea. And then we read in Luke, and Luke's account's the only one that gives us this detail, he passed him to Herod because he wanted nothing to do with it. His wife had had a terrible dream uh, of this righteous man, Jesus. And so he wanted nothing to do with having him put to death, but Herod then passes him back to Pilate. So he has to do something, but six trials and all of those are going to result ultimately in capital punishment for the Lord Jesus Christ. Capital punishment in Rome was crucifixion. But there will be no need for a civil trial for vindication. His vindication would come three days later when he is raised from the grave. As the Apostle Paul would write in 1 Timothy 3, he was vindicated by the Spirit. But for now, <clears throat> he is suffering severe injustice for us and our salvation. Keep that in mind. Now, last time we saw that John has conflated the two trials that he will undergo before Pilate. Uh, there was that trial before Herod, but John does not bring that up. Only Luke does. Now, just a little bit about Pontius Pilate. He served as the governor of Judea from 26 AD to 36 AD, and he was thoroughly hated by the Jews. And he didn't understand or get them. Josephus, the Jewish historian, gives us some background here about this fellow. They considered him, that is the Jews, considered Pontius Pilate as greedy and condescending. And he did things intentionally just to provoke them. I could give you a, a host of examples. Let me just give you one. He, he, one time he got a hold of monies that were to be used for temple service, and he used that money that was earmarked for temple service to build aqueducts just to get at the Jews. Well, that's the kind of man that Jesus is under trial with. And just for context, last week we looked at verses 33 to 37. Let's read those verses together just for context in John chapter 18. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Again, that kind of gives us an idea of what they were accusing him of, that he was seeking to undo, usurp 
Caesar's throne. He was claiming to be the king. And so he asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord? Or did others say it to you about me? Jesus knew the answer. Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, so you're a king? Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born. And for this purpose I have come into the world. His purpose is to come as king, to bear witness about the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. That was the last words that Jesus spoke before Pilate's question to him. But Paul says in 1 Timothy 6.13, that Christ Jesus in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. This was the good confession. Verse 37, for this reason I have come into the world. For this reason I was born to bear witness to the truth. What an opportunity, if you think about it, to have a personal audience, to be the, the personal audience to Jesus. Quite remarkable that Pilate had this opportunity. By the way, it's no less of an opportunity that every person here has today, not because I'm Jesus, but because when the word is preached, God the Spirit gives us Jesus if that word is rightly preached. And wouldn't it have been remarkable if Pontius Pilate had asked Jesus in this one-on-one time with him, could you tell me, how can I have my sins forgiven? How could I be saved? How could I enter the kingdom of God? But he didn't do that. Text certainly makes that clear, but if he had done that, Jesus would have certainly responded to him. He would have answered him. Instead, Pilate asked him a question, signaling his skepticism. That brings us to verse 38, Pilate's question. After Jesus said, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice, Pilate said to him, what is truth? Now, is he pridefully and skeptically dismissing the reality of truth here? Or is he humbly inquiring? I don't think it's any question. It's the former. Because he did not wait for any kind of answer from Jesus. What is truth? He's questioning the very nature of truth. And isn't that very uh, representative of what we see today in our postmodern culture. That's behind this idea that I am to live my truth 
and you are to live your truth, and your truth and my truth may be two different things. It's exactly how people talk today. It's how people think today. It's, it's the spirit of the age, the, the zeitgeist, if you will. So Pilate clearly either doesn't believe in objective truth or if there is objective truth, we can't get at it. But remember, remember this, understand this, both Pilate and Jesus can't be right at the same time. Peter, or Jesus says here that he has come to bear witness to the truth. And Pilate is questioning the very notion of truth. And all of us have to make that choice. Is Jesus right? Or is Pilate and the culture correct? Well, certainly we know that it is Jesus. And Jesus is saying he was born as truth incarnate. He has said earlier, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He said that just hours earlier to the disciples in the upper room. And he has come to confront the lies by which all of us normally live in our natural state. But think about this. Those who deny truth or are agnostic about the truth, they can't consist consistently live that out. If they're on an operating table, they are assuming that that surgeon believes in objective truth. If they're in a plane, they are assuming that Pilate believes in objective truth. And if they make any kind of assessment about what is right and what is wrong, they are assuming objective truth. In other words, they have to borrow Christian capital. They have to borrow from a Christian worldview to even make it consistently in the world. And in this case, as soon as Paul, uh, Pilate questions truth, he makes a truth claim. And that brings us to the second part of verse 38. We've seen his question, and in, in the second part of verse 38, we see his, his assessment. Second part of verse 38, he write, or John writes, after he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews. Remember, they wouldn't come in because they didn't want to be ceremonially unclean. And told them, I find no guilt in him. Now, this is the first of three times that Pilate will make that assessment about Jesus. If you look at chapter 19, verse 4, which we'll look at next week, I find no guilt in him. And then in verse 6, take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. Now, a central reason this is important is that the Passover lamb must be an unblemished lamb. You read that over and over again in the book of Leviticus. In other words, it must be a perfect sacrifice. But as well, and this is so important for us to remember, I, I wasn't raised with this as an emphasis. But for our salvation, it was crucial that Jesus 
obey the law. Now, we, I heard about the cross, and the cross is vital. And I heard about the resurrection, not as often as I heard about the cross. The resurrection is vital. But so was his obedient life before God under the law. That's why Paul writes in Galatians 4 that he was born under the law. Why? He is coming as the last Adam. He's coming as our substitute. Okay? So he was born under the law. He was circumcised on the eighth day. He began to observe the Passover when he was 12 years old. And he observed it all the way till that previous night when he transformed the last Passover into the Lord's Supper. He obeyed every jot and tittle of the law. Remember, Matthew 5 tells us, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, their righteousness was self-generated. It was based on works. No one could exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees based on works. But you, your righteousness must exceed that in order to go to heaven. And then later in Matthew 5, 48, it says that you are to be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. No one can attain to that standard. And yet before the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 3.15 tells us that Jesus has come to fulfill all righteousness. Why? He came to save us. Now, understand this. For God to be just and righteous and for him to justify anyone, they must have a right relationship with respect to the law and hence to him, the holy God. And so Jesus, our substitute, and never lose sight of that word. He's our substitute. Jesus, our substitute, he will ground our positive righteousness that we need to stand before God by providing his own perfect obedience, okay? Now, later in the morning, he will ground our pardon. We need forgiveness as well. We need to be pardoned of our sins by bearing our guilt, by bearing the punishment that we deserve. Now, certainly, Pilate is clueless on all of this. If he was privy to this, he would have bowed the knee. He's clueless. But one thing he does know is that Jesus is not guilty of the crimes they are claiming for him. And he is one of many characters that gives us a cumulative case to establish in the New Testament that the Son of God indeed had fulfilled all righteousness, that the Son of God indeed was the perfect substitute for us and our salvation. So, for instance, in Matthew 27, even Judas, now think about this, Judas betrayed Jesus. It would be easy to think 
This man, Judas, must have seen some kind of flaw in Jesus for him to turn his back on Jesus for just some 30 coins. Matthew 27, 3 says, that's not the case. When Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. He calls this man innocent, the very one who had claimed to be the Son of God. And Judas is saying, he is innocent. How about Pilate's wife? I mentioned her earlier, Matthew 27, 19. Pilate's wife sent word to him, that is to Pontius Pilate, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. So Judas, Pilate's wife, how about the man on the cross in just a few hours? Luke 23, verse 41. This man has done nothing wrong. How about the testimony of Jesus? Who else could stand and say this in John 8, 46? Which one of you convicts me of sin? I couldn't even say that in my home. I would be scared of what the children would say. Paul, in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. And so we have all these cast of characters. The writer of Hebrews, it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. How about Peter? The one that denied him three times. 1 Peter 2, he committed no sin. He spent three years with Jesus, and he writes, he committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. You know what he's saying there? He never heard Jesus slander someone. He never heard a lie, a fib, an exaggeration of the truth. He never heard gossip. He never heard complaining. All he heard was thanksgiving and praise and adoration and loving rebukes when that was necessary. And John himself, 1 John 3, verse 5, you know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. And so you have this incredible litany of people, both enemies of God and friends of the Lord Jesus Christ, who affirm this man is not guilty. He is righteous. And his righteousness is crucial to your salvation. On January the 1st, 1937, just shortly before he died, J. Gresham Machen. Now, who was he? He, he was the founder of Westminster Theological Seminary. He's a hero of the faith. He wrote a book, by the way, called Christianity and Liberalism. If you're a reader, I would highly recommend this book. He wrote it in like 1923, came out 100 years ago last year, but it's as timely today as it was then, where he is critiquing liberalism from a Christian perspective. Liberalism hasn't changed, all right? 
There's nothing new under the sun. So that's an incredible book. But he's dying, and he writes a short note to one of his best friends and colleagues, Professor John Murray, who was a great theologian. And, and here's what he said in this short note. I'm so thankful for the active obedience of Christ. No hope without it. You see his point? He recognized that as faithful as a man of God as he was, he fell short of this perfect righteous standard. But there was one who had come and obeyed the law in his place. So that he was trusting in the son, his righteousness was being imputed and credited to him. In fact, two weeks before his death, J. Gresham Machen was on a, a, a radio show. And here's what he said on that radio show, two weeks before he died. If Christ had merely paid the penalty of sin for us and had done nothing more, we should be at best back in the situation in which Adam found himself in that probationary period. But he would still be, and we would still be lacking that perfect righteousness. We need that perfect, positive righteousness if we're going to stand before an infinitely righteous God. And it has to come from the outside. It cannot come from within. That righteousness is in this one that Pilate is identifying has committed no crime or sin. But this evil actor, Pilate, ironically affirms in his own way beyond anything he would have understood that this is the faithful Adam. This is the faithful substitute, though he is speaking greater than he knows. That being said, it is clear that the Sanhedrin wants Jesus to die. And not just die any death. A stoning won't do. We saw this last week. They want him to be crucified because cursed is the one who is hung on a tree. Deuteronomy tells us that. And Pilate is torn. He is torn between releasing Jesus, who he knows hasn't committed any crime, and satisfying the chief priest, satisfying the Sanhedrin. He's torn between these two because he knows if he gets them up in an uproar, they're going to be in Rome's face complaining about Pilate. That brings us to Pilate's concession. We've seen his question. Uh, we have seen his, his um, confession, and here we see his concession. In verse 39. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. He's speaking to the Jews here. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Now, this is not in the Old Testament. Again, this was a custom. This was a tradition that had developed 
over time to grant a particular prisoner amnesty at Passover. It was a symbol likely of the Exodus event when the people of God were released from Egypt and hence escaping certain death and judgment. Pilate assumed that of all the other prisoners that they would vote in Jesus' favor. So the question here is, shall Jesus or a criminal be released? To say it another way, and I believe it's intentional, John is so intentional about irony, he's assuming that we will see if we read closely. Shall the Savior or the sinner die? Shall the Savior or the sinner suffer? Verse 40, they cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. New Living Translation and the Christian Standard Bible translates this as revolutionary. Because there's a, there's a semantic range, if you will, for the word. A robber, revolutionary. In short, Barabbas was not the best of men. Matthew 27, 16 labels him as a notorious prisoner. Mark 15, 7 says he was a rebel and an insurrectionist. Luke adds in Luke 23 that he was a murderer. Now, it's likely that Barabbas, whose name, by the way, means son of the father. Bar, that's the word for son, Abba. Bar Abba, son of the father. It is very likely, being a revolutionary and being popular with the Jews, that he was a part of a resistance movement against Rome. And because of his opposition, his very vocal and public opposition and violent opposition to Rome, he had become quite the hero among many Jews. And so a vote for Barabbas was a vote against Rome. Now, Jesus had, had a very popular, let's just say fan base, and I say that intentionally because these weren't true worshipers, but they were fans of Jesus. We saw this earlier in the week in John chapter 12 when he came in on the donkey and they were singing, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But over the course of the week, they had come to learn he had not come to to take on Rome. He had not come as our Messiah King to overthrow Rome. They thought their problem was Rome. They thought their problem, as most people in the world today believe, their problem was outside of them. When actually their real problem is inside of them 
and the perceived problems outside of them expose the real problem inside of them. Ironically, Barabbas was guilty of what Jesus was being convicted of. Let me say it another way. Barabbas' crimes and sins were being imputed to the righteous one who had not committed those crimes and sins. Matthew fills in this, Matthew 27. The governor again said to him, or to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? So he gave two choices, and they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. By the way, even Pilate, who is a, an unbeliever, a skeptic, has a conscience. And he recognizes what's going on here and he is horrified at the crimes being committed by the religious people. Beware when the world appears more holy than the religious people. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. Lord have mercy. So Barabbas was clearly not Pilate's choice, but Barabbas was ironically the kind of Messiah that Israel wanted for Jesus to be. He was a, a revolutionary, a deliverer. I would say it's akin to many today who see their hope in their political party or see their hope in a particular kind of president. Now that's not to say presidents aren't important, but when your hope is bound up in that, you will be disappointed 100% of the time. And this is where they were. As Peter would say later, just weeks later, by the way, at Pentecost in Acts 3, you denied the holy and righteous one. You asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life. The author of life, you put to death. And there's irony here in that they, these people cried out for the release of one who is just merely named son of the father and they were rejecting the one who really is eternally the son of the father. And so the righteous one is given over and the sinner is released. That's what Barabbas represents. Donald Gray Barnhouse in his 
commentary on Bible doctrine. He pictures Barabbas at this point sitting in his prison cell. And he's looking at his hands, which are about to be pierced. And he is shuddering in his cell. And suddenly he hears this angry mob crying, crucify him, crucify him. And he assumes they're talking about him. And then a jailer comes and unlocks the door of his cell. Barabbas thinks the time of execution has come. And the jailer looks at him and says, you are being set free. Jesus of Nazareth is to die instead. Well, he would have certainly been shocked. And as he joined the processional that made its way to Calvary, and he hears the sounds of the hammer and knows that the blows that are nailing Jesus to the cross should have been his. Perhaps Barabbas was saying, that man took my place. I am the one who should have died. I am the condemned murderer. That man did nothing wrong. You know, all the Old Testament saints were saved the same way you and I are saved. They were saved on debit, we're saved on credit. They were saved by the one who would come and purchase their freedom by the cross. And so they look forward, and as history unfolds, as Revelation history unfolds, we learn more in the Old Testament about this one who would come. But literally speaking, Barabbas was the first man in history who was literally able to say, at the physical level, in my place, condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a savior. And if someone had asked him for the rest of his life, who are you? I don't know if Barabbas was saved. There's no indication to say he was. But let's say that that event so stirred him that it led him to look into the claims of the one who died in his place. And he was converted by putting his faith in this substitute. Someone asked him, what is your name? He could have said, my name is Bar Abba, son of the father. I am the son in whom the eternal son took my place, bore my judgment to set me free to live as a true son of the father. So let's go back to the original question that Pilate asked. What is truth? Well, we can answer that way. I mean, we could do a whole series on, on answering that question. We could 
most generally just say, truth is that which conforms with objective facts or reality, that which corresponds to the truth of God. But contextually, what is truth? Well, one truth we see in our passage, contextually, is God's sovereignty in Jesus' death, Christ's authority in his death. We saw when he went to the garden, it was the place where he had prayed with the disciples. He knew that Judas knew that he would be there. He shows all authority even as he's arrested to be brought for trial. We've also seen that Pilate was completely certain of Jesus' innocence. He wanted to release him. Matthew 27, 19 tells us that his own wife urged him to release him. And he literally tries to acquit him by offering up Barabbas. But in spite of this, Pilate is going to give the sentence, as we'll see next time, that Jesus should be crucified. God's sovereignty in the crucifixion. Later, they will, they will say in Acts 4, 27, for truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. It was everyone. It was the, it was the Jews. It was the Gentiles. It was Herod, Antipas. It was Pontius Pilate. Notice, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. That's truth. What is truth? That's the truth. God's sovereignty in our salvation. God's sovereignty in his crucifixion. And, and note this tension, by the way. If you, if you try to fix this tension, like many people try to do, and say, well, God was sovereign over the cross, so these people really are not responsible. You make the cross unnecessary if they're not responsible. But on the other end, if you say, well, these people are responsible for the, the crucifixion of Jesus, so God wasn't sovereign over that, you make the cross an unfortunate accident in history. Both are true. God is sovereign over the cross, and these, these people were culpable for their sin. What is truth? That is the truth. But one other expression of truth we see in this text, it has to do with the fact that like it or not, in our natural state, we are more like Barabbas than we care to admit. You see, it's not merely the bad fruit of our sins that we commit, but the rotten tree of our sinful nature, which makes us subject to a, a judgment greater than just capital punishment. But here's the truth, and I want to close with these beautiful words written somewhere between 125 and 135 AD, which means this, this just happened a few generations after the resurrection from the grave. It's called the epistle or the letter to Diognetius. We don't know who wrote it. We just know the recipient was Diognetius. What is the truth? 
Here's the truth. He himself took on him the burden of our iniquities. He gave his own son as a ransom for us. The Holy One for transgressors. The blameless one for the wicked. The righteous one for the unrighteous. The incorruptible one for the corruptible. The immortal one for them that are mortal. For what other thing was capable of covering our sins than his righteousness? By what other one was it possible that we, the wicked and ungodly, we like Barabbas, you might say, could be justified than by the only Son of God? Oh, sweet exchange. Oh, unsearchable operation. Oh, benefits surpassing all expectation that the wickedness of many should be hid in a single righteous one and that the righteousness of one should justify many transgressors. What is truth? That is the truth. Incidentally, you think this whole event changed Barabbas' life? If he came to terms with who Jesus really is, think about this. Even if his preacher didn't preach on marriage, just preached on Jesus, it would have changed his marriage. Even if his preacher didn't preach on evangelism, now these are all important. He just preached on Jesus. It would have made him more evangelistic. Even if his preacher didn't preach on sacrificial giving, it would have made him more sacrificial in his giving. It would have transformed everything just because he beheld the one who died for him. That's why this message is first and foremost to every believer here this morning. But as Josh and the musicians come forward, we also recognize that Jesus' death for Barabbas's like us does us no good unless you're united to Jesus. And the only way to be united to him is not by osmosis. It's by repentance and faith in Jesus. We're gonna give you an opportunity to, to commit to him this morning. We're gonna have our pastors standing here at the end of the aisle. Maybe you have a question about what that means. Maybe you'd like to commit to Christ, whatever it may be, won't you come as we stand and sing? Thanks for worshiping with us today. If you felt the Lord leading you to respond today, whether that was to receive Christ for the first time or to take your next step in baptism, or if you have a prayer request, we wanna start that conversation with you. Visit lakeviewbaptist.org contact to get in touch with one of our pastors. And as always, you can stay connected with us through our social media and website.